Today, we are going to be talking about a specific title. And it's a specific title that Yeshua bore, and that is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. How many of you ever wondered, you, you, you start trekking through Scripture, you start studying it. How many of you ever wondered about this particular title? It sounds a little bit peculiar. Uh, what does it mean? Why does Yeshua bear this title? What's the significance? Well, like all titles, they tell a story, a very important story. You think of some of the titles that we have, like the Son of David, the Son of God, very similar to that of, if you will, uh, the Son of Man. With the Son of David, what does it tell you? It tells you, well, the Messiah tells you a lot. It's a story. It tells you that the Messiah would come according to the lineage of David. He comes in that lineage, not just that, but what does this title tell you? It tells you Yeshua is a king. He's the king, right? He's the heir to the throne. You look at this title, the son of God, what does this tell us? It tells us that he's very, very unique. He is the monogenes theos, as you would read in John chapter 1. He is proston theon. He is divine. The title tells us so much. It is no different with this title. The title tells this beautiful story. And today we're going to investigate what the story is. I want to open up today by taking you to John chapter 12, verse 23. And this is what we read. But Yeshua answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. The son of man. I, I want to be very clear on something. Yeshua is intentional about what specific title he has chosen to use in this context. What is the context? Well, dropping down to verse 32, we read, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So get this. Yeshua intentionally uses the title, the Son of Man. It is in the context of his death, of his crucifixion. Now, as he's speaking to this crowd, now keep in mind the backdrop here is Yeshua is in Yerushalayim. He's speaking to uh, his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. In fact, the crowd that is actually present is very special uh, because they actually, some of these people witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. And people have come to see and to hear Yeshua because they've heard about this. And so he's got this incredible crowd hanging on every word. And so he makes this statement that the Son of Man has to be lifted up. Listen to how these people respond. Moving on to verse 34. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Mashiach remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Oh, we need to take some time on this passage because if you blow through it, your understanding will be that they are not familiar with the title, the Son of Man. And you would be mistaken. This crowd is very familiar with the Son of Man. In fact, let's just look at what just transpired. Yeshua declared that the Son of Man, this title, is going to be lifted up. Do you see how they responded? They specifically state, well, wait a second. The law says that the Mashiach remains forever. Guess what? These Jews equated the title, the Son of Man, with the Messiah. This is critical to point out. And let me build on this, going to Daniel chapter 7. Let me show you why they believe this. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, meaning the Father. So here we have the Son of Man coming to the Father, and they brought him near before him. Moving on to verse 14, and we read, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Isn't that interesting? Because what did they just say in response to his, oh, the Son of Man is going to be crucified, he's going to be lifted up. The response is, no, we've heard in the law of the Mashiach, he remains forever. And let me be very clear about something. Daniel chapter 7, 
Jewish tradition, you can go into the Babylonian Talmud and we can see this, that back in these days, they absolutely saw Daniel 7 as a messianic prophecy. You can see this in Tractate Sanhedrin 96b, 97b. There's proof of this. They looked at this thing. They said, this son of man, the one being talked about, he's the Messiah. And the Messiah is to come on the clouds of heaven. So maybe we can appreciate a little bit more this confusion that they have. See, because when Yeshua starts talking about the son of man's to crucify, they're like, hold on, hold on. Time out. Time out. Who is the Son of Man? In other words, modern day translation, who is the Son of Man you're talking about? Because he doesn't sound anything like the one we know. The one that has been talked about in the law. Which the the way the term is being used in the law is broad scope of the entire Tanakh. And that's common as you get into the New Testament. It's not an uncommon thing to do. What Yeshua just described to them, this was something completely different than what they were expecting Completely different. And if we want to understand this title, this title, the Son of Man, we are going to have to pick up on this reality. The fact that this title is associated with him dying, with him being crucified, giving his life uh, for our sins. In fact, if we go through the Gospels and look at uh, all the places where Yeshua refers to his death, you're going to find out something interesting. Go see these dialogues. Go through the gospel and identify all these different dialogues that Yeshua has with his disciples where he's trying to reveal to them. They're blinded to it, but he's trying to reveal to them what what, what has to happen to him. And you will be blown away because he's very specific on what title he uses. It is the Son of Man. Let me just give you a couple examples. Going to Matthew 17, verse 22, and we read, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Yeshua said to them, The Son of Man of man, here's that title, is about to be betrayed in the hands of men, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up, and there will be exceedingly sorrowful. Again, he is intentional about what title he wants to use in this context. It's in the context of his crucifixion, the, the son of man. Jumping ahead to Matthew chapter 20, verse 8, and we read, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve And what? To give his life a ransom for many. And I could show you many, many others. Over and over again, he keeps utilizing this title in this capacity. I want to take you to the book of Hebrews. Because Hebrews articulates quite well why Yeshua had to be the Son of Man. I see him using the title all over the place in the Gospels, but why? Why did this have to happen? Well, look what the writer says, and this is going to unlock this. We're going to dig deep into this title of the Son of Man. This is going to give us a dimension we need. And the writer says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Moving on to verse 15, and we read, And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Avraham. Moving on to verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I want you to understand there are three profound concepts here that encompass this whole title, the Son of Man. Number one, we discover he came to die for the sins of the world. Well, yeah, that, 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 that's obvious, right? He came to do that. But not just that, in conjunction with that, he also came as a man to relate. You understand? He came as a man to relate. You think about the reality of God in all his perfectness, in all his holiness. He is concealed for a reason. His glory was revealed, we'd all be dead, right? There is a disconnect between his creation and him. There's a massive disconnect. Think about when Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve fell into transgression, they were cast out from the presence of the living God. This is what happens. So there's this massive disconnect. He's not corrupted. We are corrupted. 
It's that simple. So what had to happen is there needed to be a bridge built. A bridge built between here and Shemayim, right? To connect us back to God. And this is where Yeshua comes in. He comes in so that now he can relate to us. In fact, if you go on in, in Hebrews, uh, it's interesting. Uh, but he talks about that we have a faithful high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are. He can sympathize. That's necessary. It was necessary to, to have him come in the flesh to be a son of man. Where God becomes man, it was necessary. Why? So that we have a faithful and merciful high priest. It had to be this way. This is the conduit to connect us. But in addition to that, look at what he says here, what I have highlighted. He had to be made like his brethren. And it's in, in the Greek, homoi o'o. He had to assimilate. And this is profound. Listen to me very, very carefully. In regard to understanding something about the Son of Man, you better understand this. He eternally preexisted. This is a fact, and this is critical. The Son of Man eternally preexisted. He had to be made like his brethren. He had to be, you read Philippians 2, he had to humble himself, but literally put aside his glory, and he had to take on the form of a bondservant. You understand? Thus, he had to eternally pre-exist. And I'm going to tell you, as we get into this deeper, you're going to see how monumental that revelation really is and how important it is. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 45, this is what we read. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Think about this. You, you, you hear the concept or the, the statement, dust to dust. Well, Nate, make no mistake. All of us, we could call ourselves all sons of men. We are all sons of Adam. We're all sons of Adam, right? Dust to dust. That is not the case with Yeshua. He is the Lord, kurios in the Greek, he is the Lord that comes down from heaven. Read John chapter 6. It's over and over again. So this, and in the context that, that Paul paints here, is explicitly hammering this concept I'm sharing with you. It's hammering at home. He came as a man. He's called the second man. You call him the second Adam. But he didn't come explicitly from the dust like we all do. He came from heaven. Eternally preexistent. Jumping ahead to Romans chapter 5, or going backwards actually, chapter 5 verse 14, we read the following. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moshe, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. It's interesting. In other words, what, what Paul is actually telling us here is that Adam was a typology. The first Adam, made in the image of God. The man, it's a prophetic typology of Yeshua. And we're told that he would come in his likeness. Hence the term, the son of man. Now, just as an interesting side note, if you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll notice over and over again, Ezekiel is literally almost a hundred times. And you won't find this with any other prophet, just Ezekiel. He's called over and over again, the son of man. And what's interesting, you actually go to the Hebrew, it's Ben-Adam, the son of Adam. And then all this comes together. And I, you know, I could prepare an entire you know, couple-week session on just talking about the book of Ezekiel. And I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to touch on this, kind of give you a taste of the reality. See, because mysteries of who Yeshua was and what he would do and what would happen to him, they are concealed within the Tanakh. And hindsight's easy. It's 2020. We look at it today and they just they literally come alive. They come off the pages. Well, that's how prophecy is supposed to work because then it points us to Yeshua. This is how he prophesies. It happens. And we go, ah, he said it would happen. This is of the Lord, right? Well, with Ezekiel, 
This is going to blow your mind, but I'm only going to scratch the surface here. Ezekiel was a typology of Yeshua. One of the most powerful typologies you will find in the entire Tanakh. And what's interesting to me is he kind of gets lost in the mix. I mean, we talk about Joseph or Yosef, right? Amazing typology of Yeshua. We talk about Moshe, amazing typology of Yeshua. We talk about David, King David, amazing typology. For whatever reason, Ezekiel doesn't really typically make the list. And it's a tragedy because when you realize who Ezekiel was, number one, let's just say he was a prophet. Start the bat, right off the bat. He was a prophet. Yeshua was what? He was a prophet. He was more than that. Ezekiel was a priest. He was a Kohen. And what was Yeshua? He was a Kohen. What was the title that the Lord called him over and over again, almost a hundred times? He called Ezekiel the son of man. The very title that Yeshua bore. Now, in addition to that, you look at his mission. What was Ezekiel's mission? This prophet priest, he was sent to go speak to Israel. He was sent to go speak to Yerushalayim. I ask you, what was Yeshua's mission? Just that. I have not come except for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This was his mission. In addition to that, Ezekiel, and we're told this explicitly, was sent to a rebellious house. Challenge you, read the Gospels, and what you will find is Yeshua was sent to a rebellious house. He was sent to a wicked and rebellious generation. Same, same, over and over again. We know with Ezekiel, the Lord did something supernatural. He put words in his mouth. Again, read the Gospels, and what you will find is Yeshua says, the word that I've spoken to you is not mine. As the Father gave me a command, so that I speak. The father put his words in his mouth. This son of man, he did this. The typologies, they just don't stop. One of the things that you see that Ezekiel says to Israel, he who has ears, let him hear. What does Yeshua say? He says the exact same thing. Ezekiel, part of his mission was to go and warn his brethren, to warn Israel, to warn Yerushalayim. What was Yeshua's mission? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And where things get really interesting, and where we're supposed to pick up on this stuff, because we get it right away at the beginning of the book, is we are told that Ezekiel was bound. Now, this is interesting because we, there's no question Yeshua was bound. Bind the sacrifice to the cord, to the, with cords to the horns of the altar. This is, this is the prophecy in Psalm 118. Yeshua was bound, but get this. As you start reading about the son of man, Ezekiel, in this context, he says he was bound. And one of the things that is described in him being bound is that his tongue would cling to the roof of his mouth. The very thing that happened to Yeshua, that prophecy in Psalm 22 said his tongue would cling to the roof of his mouth. And you just think about one of the other things that he was commanded to speak. Ezekiel was commanded to tell them, the design of the temple. And if they at all are ashamed of their sins, there was the whole concept here was to reveal the temple to them, the dimensions to them, and they were supposed to tremble and be ashamed of their sins. Isn't that fascinating? Because when Yeshua comes on the scene, he goes forth and he does what? He explains the temple. He shows them the dimensions. How does he do that? Because he preached himself. He is the temple of God. Destroy this temple in three days and I will rebuild it. He showed them who he was. He revealed himself to his brethren. For what purpose? That they may be ashamed. I mean, we could go all day long. It doesn't stop. This prophet, this priest, Ezekiel, bearing this image, the son of man, it unlocks all these doors to help us understand what this title is really about. Now, everything we're, we're talking about here, specifically that Yeshua has he's come as the son of man, I want you to understand from the very onslaught, first century, I mean, the apostles, the Jewish apostles, from the very onslaught, As truth went out of who Yeshua was, that he was the son of man, the son of David, the son of God, guess what happened right behind him? The enemy, the gates of hell opened and he went after the truth in a very, very frightening and powerful way. And I want to take you to 1 John. And this is what we read. Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses what? That Yeshua HaMashiach has come in the flesh is of God. This is interesting. Every spirit that confesses Yeshua as the son of man. You have to confess him as the son of man. That is the spirit of the living God. But then he goes on to give this warning in verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Yeshua HaMashiach has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now, this is interesting as we learn a lot, right? Number one, this whole concept of the Antichrist is coming. The Antichrist is coming. And we read these books, The Left Behind. We're waiting for the Antichrist. Wake up. He's been here since the first century. And he's been wreaking havoc. And the people are blind and they cannot even see the spirit of Antichrist moving. And John identifies this. Yochanan identifies this. And what does he do? As an awesome apostle of the living God, he goes forth and he attacks. He attacks. He rises up to war against the spirit of Antichrist. To save his brethren. And he says they're already in the world. You know... I want you to understand that John had a pretty good reason for writing this specific warning in his days because there was a group of people in his time that went forth and they proclaimed that Yeshua has not come in the flesh. The group I'm referring to is none other than the Gnostics, what we now call Gnosticism. And let me be very clear on something in regard to these Gnostics. These were men who identified themselves as believers. They identified themselves as Christians. All right? And they clung to the reality that Yeshua is divine. They knew that he was divine. He was holy in every way. The things that he did, these miracles, there was no debate. This was not something to be debated. They knew this. This is called the doctrine of docetism, right? And the Gnostics were complex little creatures, if you will, in the way they painted themselves and their ideologies. I mean, the, you talk about the influence they had. They've had a massive impact on the world. The Renaissance, uh, you, you think about the Age of Enlightenment. I make no mistake, the Gnosticism was alive and well in these movements. Well, this movement was moving forth ferociously. And one of the things that you need to understand about the Gnostics is that this docetism, they said, and follow me, because this is far more deceptive than what you might think. See, we just think, oh yeah, you're foolish, you're, you're so stupid. Of course he came in the flesh. Well, he obviously died. Well, see, hold on, the Gnostics would come in and they would basically say, well, wait a second. He was God, he was perfect, he was holy. And the reality is, is what you saw was an illusion. But they wouldn't frame it like that to sound like it's some, you know, crazy trick. They said that he just merely manifested himself in human form. Let me ask you a question. Has that ever happened in scripture where God has come down and manifest himself as a man? And the answer to that is yes, it has happened. Read the Tanakh. Abraham looks out. He sees three men, men, Come to find out, one of them is yod heh vav -Heh. Okay? Now, clearly, is yod heh vav -Heh a man? Well, the, the argument is, of course not. Who did Jacob wrestle with? He said he wrestled with God. He saw God face to face. His life was preserved. He wrestled with a man. It literally says a man. And so, the Gnostics coming in, they were very, very crafty. They were very crafty and said, what, no, no. what we saw was, yes, Yeshua put on this cloak, if you will, of humanity. But because of how holy and how righteous he is, he's, he was God. He never really was part of this corrupted flesh. See, this is docetism going back to a perfect God cannot come into a corrupted state. I mean, you think about that on many levels and we agree, you know, there's a reason why sin separated us from God to begin with. He won't come into a corrupted state. 
You know, it's fascinating to me, and this is, this is well, I'm going to say it how it is. What's fascinating to me is Gnosticism is alive and well today, but it's not taking the form that you would think. Gnosticism is alive in the context of in the first century. And let me be clear on something. I want to be clear on something. The Messianic assemblies that existed in the first century, there was no debate on whether or not Yeshua was God. That wasn't debatable. There was no debate in that. You will not find that anywhere in the early Christian church or in the early messianic assemblies. That wasn't debatable. And this is why the Gnostics come in. They didn't even want to touch that with the 10-foot pole because it was beyond dispute at this time. So they started talking about, well, he never really came into the flesh. Now, let me get to today. Isn't it interesting that Satan has flip-flopped the argument to the exact opposite? See, today, what is the debate Today, now the debate is, and messianic assemblies, is whether or not Yeshua is God. No, no, the, the debate is he didn't eternally pre-exist. The debate is he cannot be worshipped. He cannot be prayed to. He was of the flesh. And so all the emphasis has gone on the fact that he was an anointed one. With all due respect, all the men we read about in scripture are the anointed ones. You could call them Mashiachs, because that's what it means to be anointed. King David was anointed. He was a Mashiach. Moses was anointed. Elijah was anointed. All these men were anointed. They were all Mashiachs. With that said, I, I want to share with you an excerpt because I want to build on this. I want to give you some serious perspective on deception. And, and it just kind of, you know, coming off the, the, the heels of, you know, God's mercy and the devil's grace. Um, I want to share with you what John and the other apostles were up against with these Gnostics and show you how corrupt they really were. And I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to a book uh, going back into the historical account of the Gnostics and the first Christian heretics. And listen to this commentary. Valentinus was the greatest of the second century Gnostics and was, after Marcion, the church's biggest enemy of the time. Now, put this in context. Indeed, in some cases, Valentinus and his followers were regarded as a more um, insidious threat to the church than even Marcion because they were harder to detect. <laughs> we just got done talking about Marcion and, you, and we talked about the incredible deception that was involved and the tantalizing, the alluringness of his gospel, which he was a hybrid Gnostic. You know, the Gnostics, just so you know, they believed in two gods, but they didn't just come out and say, well, there's just two gods. They were more clever in their approach. But now, here we read, they're harder to detect. This is the spirit of Antichrist. Do you understand why Paul gets wor- or John gets worked up? Paul too? The apostles, Peter? All these apostles getting worked up because they see the deception. When there's that great of deception, there's going to be great fall. Great casualties. Well, now he goes on and he says this. Unlike Marcion, Valentinus tried to make Gnosticism compatible with the church and developed a complex form of Gnosticism that incorporated an immense mythology intended to embrace everything external and internal. Thus, Valentinus and his followers regarded themselves as Christians and most definitely part of the Christian community. They attended mainstream churches and what it should say is your synagogues. They attended mainstream synagogues and also met together on their own. Well, let me tell you something. The spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of Gnosticism, it was absolutely articulated beautifully right here. Because what they do, people that subscribe to this type of spirit, they come in, they dwell among us, and then they retreat by themselves to talk about their heretical ideas the heretical ideologies, in a safe place. And here's the thing about Gnostics, and here's the thing about it's really alive today. These same people, they would retreat, and they would talk about their heretical doctrines, but they would do it in the capacity with the heart where they felt sorry for everyone else because they just are not, they just don't get it. They just don't understand. They don't read the scriptures right. And they would point the fingers, we're the enlightened ones. We're the ones that have been lifted up and given, given this truth. It's the same thing with the Essenes. 
same concept. When the Essenes came, you know, and this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls have been found, it said that this was from the Essene community. Well, if you study the Essenes, they were too pious to be a part of Israel. They were too pious to come into Jerusalem. You want to know why? Because they said the Pharisees and Sadducees, they got the dates wrong on the feasts. They don't have the dates right. We'll separate ourselves. They're heretics, so we'll, we'll create our own community, and we'll, we'll follow according to our own ways. See, the spirit of Antichrist, I don't care what name you put on it, it is very deceptive. And it cloaks itself in this self-exalted piety. Very, very dangerous. And I just wanted to show you this because perhaps you have a, a deeper appreciation for why John went ferociously after this spirit, after the, the Gnostics. He saw them attempting to integrate themselves into the Messianic assemblies and with just crafty precision start weaving that tapestry that Yeshua, no, he, re he really wasn't. He didn't come in the flesh. He wasn't really man. You know as well as I do how awesome and how powerful that he's directly come from heaven, that he is of the Father. Of course he didn't come into this. And they start weaving this tapestry of insanity. But it sounds good to people, especially if you're newer to the faith you're coming in. Stuff sounds really good. In fact, given this reality, I want to show you something about this title, the Son of Man, and how it is interconnected with the title, the Son of God. Very powerful. And try to wrap your mind around that. We'll, we'll get into this. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Yeshua came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Let's be very clear. He's with his disciples. The title he has chosen to place upon himself is the son of man. And then he asks the question. I'm, he's saying, I'm the son of man, but who do others say that I am? Listen to the response in verse 14. So they said, some say Yochanan, the Immerser, some Eliyahu, others Yermiyahu, or one of the Nevim. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, now interesting, Peter being a Jew, he answers and he understands exactly what those men in John chapter 12 understood. His response when Yeshua says, I'm the son of man, what's he say? You are the Mashiach. See, because Peter understands this, that the son of man is the Mashiach, but he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, you are the son of the living God. You are the Mashiach, the son of the living God. You don't talk about a mind bender. What does this tell you about the Son of Man? Well, I'll tell you what it tells you. He's not normal. This is not a normal Son of Man. None of us who are sons of men can walk around and say, we are the Son, the, the definite article, the Son of the living God. Nobody in their right mind that wants to live would say such things. Amen? Right? Let me give you, let me give you an example. I want to take you to Matthew 9. You need to understand the Son of Man possesses attributes. The Son of Man possesses attributes that are not of this world. They're not of this world. In Matthew 9, chapter 2. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic on a bed. When Yeshua saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. You read Luke's account of this. I like Luke's account a little bit better because he adds something that is brutally important. Only who can forgive, it says, who can forgive sins but God alone. So in their hearts, they're crying out blasphemy. Yeshua, you are blaspheming because no one can forgive sins but God alone. Well, with half of that, I agree with. They are right. No one can forgive sins but God alone. But where they are wrong is he's not a blasphemer. So we continue on in verse 4. But Yeshua, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, isn't this interesting? I want to stop right here. Because whether you're falling into Gnosticism or whether you're falling on the other end of the spectrum and denying the divinity, denying the deistic nature of Yeshua, you do not identify with his nature as he has been presented. Yeshua, you fall into the case that, well, you're, no, you're blaspheming. 
I'll give you an example. It's real simple. If I say Yeshua isn't God, that he went out forgiving sins, he went out acting as God, but he's not God. I'm a blasphemer. On the flip side, it said, well, yeah, he is God, but he never came in the flesh. I am a blasphemer. There's evil in my heart because I have not clung to truth. Now he goes on and he says, for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk. But that you might know what? That the son of man, the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. See, this is no ordinary son of man. This is the son of man, unique in every way. The monogamous theos, he's above all men. He has the power this son of man has the power to forgive sins and understand something. There's the things that Yeshua did and the things that Yeshua said had never, ever happened before. Never happened where he's opening the eyes of the blind. Who's ever heard of such a thing that he's opened the eyes of the blind? Where he commands the winds and seas be still. He commands Lazarus to come forth. All of these things, absolutely amazing, unheard of. The way he taught, unheard of. And to the point where he can make statements like this, for the son of man is Lord even of the Shabbat. How many of you are going to stand up and say, I'm the Lord of the Shabbat? Does Moses say he's the Lord of the Shabbat since the Torah was given to him? Did Elihahu, did, did David, did any of these righteous men that have been before Yeshua, did they rise up and say anything like this? Not a chance. They had wisdom. Yet the son of man... Look at this title. This is, not just, this is more than what you typically think. This son of man is the Lord even of the Shabbat. Well, it goes back to what Paul says. Well, clearly, he's not from here. This son of man is the Lord from heaven. Very powerful. I want to take you to the book of Enoch. Interestingly enough, this book has a lot to say about the son of man. And if you haven't heard me say this before, you're going to hear me say it again. Listen to this. My affinity, Dan, people come to me, Daniel, you just seem to have this, just this love for the, for the book of Enoch. You like to quote it and whatever. And yes, I do. But I want you to understand there's one and only one reason why that book has drawn me in. And that is because it declares Yeshua as the Messiah. No question about it. There is no debate. That book promotes, defends what Yeshua did, what he said, what he said he was. The son of God, the son of David, the son of man. And in a marvelous way, you're just going to get a little taste of this. I want to take you to the 62nd chapter in verse 1. And this is what we read. And thus the Lord commanded the kings and the mighty men and the exalted and those who dwell on earth and said, Open your eyes and lift up your horns if you are able to recognize the elect one. Now I want to be very clear the one being spoken of, the elect one, is none other than Yeshua. Moving on to verse 2. And the Lord of spirits, who is the Lord of spirits? He is the Father. The Father seated him. Who is him? Yeshua. On the throne of his glory. Now, I want to stop here because all you need to do is read the New Testament. And what do you know? It says the exact same thing. Revelation 3, read it. He sat on his Father's throne in fact you go to revelation 22 do you know that it's not just called it's not called the throne of god it is called the throne of god and of the lamb powerful powerful and the spirit of righteousness was poured out upon him read luke 4 the spirit of righteousness is poured out on yeshua and he goes out into his ministry. And the word of his mouth slays all sinners. I want to be very clear on something. Read Revelation 19. And it literally describes Yeshua's coming. It literally, he's called the word. Okay? And a sword is coming out of his mouth. John sees a sword coming out of his mouth. And what is it doing? It's slaying all the sinners. And all the unrighteous are destroyed before his face. Now, I want you to notice here that what's really being described What's really being described here is that this elect one, if we will, he's a judge. 
He's the one that judges. Now, this is interesting to me because as you read John chapter 5, Yeshua says the father judges no one, but he's committed all judgment to the son. To the son. He's committed all judgment to the son. Well, if we come to verse 25 in John chapter 5, most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. Now, I want to stop here because you're going to see the son of God is brought in with the Son of Man. They're connected, okay? They're going to hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And let me be clear on something. No one has life in himself except God. Can we agree on that? All right? Moving on to verse 27. And he and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Son of God, the Son of Man. And that title, see, we're studying this title. What does it mean? It's a ref- One of the things that it means is it is a reference to the fact that he is the judge. He is the judge. Now, going back to Enoch, continuing on in verse uh, 5 in chapter 62, we read the following. And one portion of them shall look on the other, and they shall be terrified, and they shall be downcast of countenance, and pains shall seize them when they see the Son of Man sitting on the throne of his glory. Moving on to verse 6. And the kings and the mighty and all who possess the earth shall bless and glorify and extol him who rules over all who was hidden. And isn't this interesting? Here explicitly Enoch identifies it is the son of man. And what is happening to the son of man? He is being worshipped. The son of man is being worshipped. He is being blessed. He is being glorified. He is being extolled. I'm going to tell you something. If we go to the New Testament, we find the very same thing being said of Yeshua. People falling down all over the place to worship him. From the very beginning of the New Testament to the very end. From the time he was born, Matthew chapter 2, the men came to worship the king. They fell down and they worshiped him. You think of it as you go on. The leper that comes to you in Matthew chapter 8. We're told he worshiped Yeshua. Go to Matthew chapter 9. Jairus comes. He worships Yeshua. Go to Matthew 15. The, the Syrio-Phoenician woman comes. The woman from Cam- She falls down and worships him. Go to the post-resurrection. Go to after the disciples witnessed the resurrection. What does Matthew 28 say? They worshiped him. Or even Matthew 14 where Peter walked on water, then then Yeshua brings him back to the boat. It says they fell down and worshipped him. Not Peter, worshipped Yeshua. Very, very powerful. And Revelation 5.12, saying with a loud voice, this is the 24 elders, so I'm I'm getting off of this earth. I want to look at what happens in heaven. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Worship. He's worshiped by the heavenly host. In fact, if you continue on in that revelation passage, you'll find that that is the exact words that are used in worship of the Father. Amazing. John chapter 9, verse 35. Let's build on this. Yeshua heard that they had put uh, him out. It's talking about the blind man. He healed a blind man on the Shabbat, didn't go over well. They thought Yeshua was a blasphemer. And finding the blind man, Yeshua said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? What a, again, this is, see, this is why we're covering this. What a peculiar question. Why? Yeshua asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answers, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Yeshua said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And what did he do? He worshiped him. The Son of Man. He worshipped him. Something we can offer no man on this earth. You remember when Cornelius tried to worship Peter? Yeah, that didn't go well. Get up. I myself am a man as you are. He offered Prosca now. He would not receive it. He could not. Not, 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 not receive it and live. Now, as we continue on, I want to get back to the book of Enoch. We're going to learn something else about the son of man that's very important with this title and this is what we read in enoch 62 verse 7 from the beginning the son of man was hidden 
And the Most High preserved him in the presence of his might and revealed him to the elect. Now, this is interesting here because clearly Enoch says that the Son of Man, he was concealed. He was, if you will, he is hidden. I'm going to tell you yet once again, the New Testament is filled with passages in regard to this fact that he was hidden. Let me just give you one example. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Yeshua HaMashiach, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. In other words, he's saying now Yeshua has been revealed, but that was hidden. In fact, Paul, if you go to like Colossians, he actually uses the term hidden. This mystery, Yeshua was hidden and then revealed. But I want you to understand what Enoch is talking about being hidden. This is multi-layered. And you might say, well, what are you talking about, Daniel? Well, I'm talking about there's a reality that the Son of Man was concealed until the right point, until it was the Father's time to reveal him to the world. But that's not just concealed. There's another level of concealment because even when Yeshua came, he was only revealed exactly what Enoch said. If you caught it, if you paid attention, he was only revealed to the elect. And with this, again, Scripture confirms. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Yeshua answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. So here Yeshua comes on the scene. He's talking to his brethren, and some of them cannot hear him. It's been hidden. The things of who and who he was, was hidden. You know, there's a reason you think about some of the things, they all start to, all these things start to come to the surface. Now you know when Yeshua went out and healed, for instance, the leper, and then he commands him, see that you tell no one. Why? Because he was to be hidden. He was still to be concealed, even though he was revealed. Now, finishing up with Enoch, I want to go back to Enoch 62, verse 8. And the congregation of the elect in the holy, oh, shall be sown. And all the elect shall stand before him on that day. Fascinating, because Enoch explicitly takes this term, the son of man, and says it is the son of man who sows. He sows the elect. Where have we heard this before? Matthew 13, 37. And he said to them, he who sows the good seed is who? The son of man. The same title that Enoch uses to express the sowing is exactly what Yeshua comes out and uses himself. He uses this title, the son of man, because the son of man sows. And in fact, interesting, since we're kind of getting into this divine aspect of the son of man, read Jeremiah 31, and what you will find it is Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh who sows. And here, as we come in, now we've discovered that it is the Son of Man who sows the elect. Moving on to verse 9 in Enoch 62. And all the kings and the mighty and the exalted and those who rule the earth shall fall down before him on their faces. And what do they do? They worship and set their hope upon that Son of Man and petition him and supplicate for mercy at his hands. Isn't that fascinating? Because I am inundated with stories in the New Testament where Yeshua is going out and people are begging him, the Son of Man, for mercy. Right? Have mercy on us. They're looking for mercy. They have set their hope on him. The testimony after he resurrected, they went out and preached to Yeshua, the hope of Israel. He's the hope. And here, this is exactly what Enoch is talking about, all in regard to this title, the Son of Man. Moving on to verse 10. Nevertheless, that Lord of spirits will so press them that they shall hastily go forth from his presence and their faces shall be filled with shame and the darkness shall grow deeper on their faces. I want to be very clear. Again, if you're paying close attention here, uh, what did Enoch just describe? He's talking about the elect and now... He's talking about the wicked. Can you say Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats? This is what's being described here, the sheep and the goats. Moving on to verse 11. And he, meaning Yeshua, the son of man, will deliver them to the angels for punishment to execute vengeance on them because they have oppressed his children and his elect. Again, interesting. The son of man, he does what? He sends his angel out. Have I ever heard this before? 
Matthew 13, 41, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Don't think it's a coincidence that Yeshua uses this specific title. It's just fascinating how Enoch prophesied of these things. There is a reason why the book Enoch is getting shoved away. I'll just tell you that. Going back to verse 12. And they shall be a spectacle for the righteous and for his elect. They shall rejoice over them because the wrath of the Lord of spirits resteth upon them. And his word is drunk with their blood. I just ask you, go and read Revelation 19. And Yeshua's garments are soaked in blood. It's not his. It's the blood of his enemies. His sword is drunk with blood. Go and read Isaiah, the passage. coming directly from Isaiah. It says the same thing. We're going to close with this verse, Enoch 62, verse 13. And the righteous and elect shall be saved. This is, and I want to stop here. But all the craziness that is ensuing right now, all the violence, all the hatred, Satan sowing racism in this country, do not look at the things that are temporary. Amen. Look to the things that are eternal. Cling to Yeshua, cling to the hope, and despite these wicked and evil things, do not let a wicked thought in your heart come in. Do not get sucked into this garbage. Stand in love. That even when people reproach you for whatever reason, your skin or your faith, we respond in love. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those that spitefully use you. Love your enemies. Amen? This is what we're called to do. And the righteous and elect shall be saved. This is our promise. This is hope. I love this. This gives me hope. And on that day, they shall never thenceforward see the face of the sinners and unrighteous. And the Lord of spirits will abide over them. And with that son of man, they shall eat and lie down and rise up forever and ever. This is our promise. This is what we have for a promise. And isn't that interesting? Because going back to Revelation 19, what does it talk about? It talks about eating. The marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the promise. So in closing, I just want to say this is a title. And again, I could have, I could have probably spent some more weeks on this. But you get the idea. This title, the Son of Man, it has great meaning. And the key component for us is we must confess him. As the son of man, he came in the flesh, he died for us, and he has risen, right? The power is in the resurrection. 